It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 138, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Kelly Kingsland and Russell Poe raise about an acre and a half of produce at Affinity Farm in Moscow, Idaho. With sales to a farmer's market, a small CSA, and restaurant and retail stores, Kelly and Russell have created a lean, smart, and profitable farm that has provided a right livelihood for 16 years. We dig into the values that have informed their decision-making and their market development, including their decision to farm in a small but progressive city of Moscow. Kelly and Russell talk about how they developed a CSA model that really works for them as farmers, their efforts to foster an active market farming community, and their recent diversification into seed production, and how all of that ties back to a philosophy of giving good weight to their customers and their community. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production, vermontcompost.com. And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service, bcsamerica.com. And the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by you, the community of Farmer to Farmer podcast listeners. By setting up a small monthly donation at farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate, you can be a vital part of reaching and growing the Farmer to Farmer podcast community. Kelly Kingsland and Russell Poe, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Uh, it's good to be here, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. I'd like to start off today by having you tell us a little bit about Affinity Farm there in Moscow, Idaho. How much are you growing? What are you growing? And, and how are you selling it? Okay, so we are in the city limits of Moscow. We farm one acre. We, we have five, but we cultivate one. And then for this past season, we leased a half acre uh, just maybe five minutes from here. So this was our 16th year, and we direct market everything, mostly to the farmer's market on Saturday, and then also restaurant sales and the co-op. And we have a small CSA. And just to ask, because I mean, one, one and a half acres isn't a whole lot of ground. Are you guys making a living at this? Have you guys been making a living since 2001? Absolutely. Uh, maybe not since the original, you know, originally when we started, but for a long time now we have been. And I think John Martin sort of um, exposed people's ability to make it a living off small acreage um, with sort of precise planning and marketing. When I set up to do an interview. Part of the research I do is to to look at people's farms on Google Maps. And you know, you guys are you guys are right on the edge of the city and you're surrounded by the Palouse. I mean, one of the great agricultural places in the world. With all of that around you, why do you farm in the city? Well, there's a number of different reasons, sort of threefold reasons. Um, it is a great agriculture region of the Palouse, but it's also um, 100% commercial chemical ag. So all that land is sprayed and, you know, not so great for organic farmers to be next to. And we also have a daughter um, and she was in school and we wanted her to continue in the Moscow school system rather than the outlying areas. Moscow is a liberal enclave of um, a university with a long-standing co-op and just a really great place um, compared to a lot of rural Idaho that's um, not. Mm-hmm. And then transportation. And then transportation. Yeah, we really, uh, we're really uh, idealistic um, and part of our driving force behind starting the farm was to reduce the petroleum consumption of vegetables and agriculture 
people travel all over the place. So we wanted to be close. We drive about um, less than a mile to the market. That's a huge advantage. Now, Moscow, also not a big city. And you guys are making a go of it there. It's not a big city, but there's a great market here. And we also have Pullman, which is just across the border in Washington, maybe, what, eight, nine miles away. So there's another university there, um, WSU. We have University of Idaho here. So between the two towns and the surrounding, you know, people come from all over the county and several counties to come to this market. And the co-op's 40 years plus old, and there's a pretty good restaurant scene. And there's, I guess there's a great market. Um, for for what we're doing. And actually, Chris, I've shaken my head at at, at you <laughs> over the years um, or listening to your podcast and you sort of, you know, saying, well, there's Madison and there's Portland and there's these cities that are really um, invested in local agriculture, but these small towns don't, they're not viable. But, you know, our market has 8,000 people that attended every Saturday through the 24-week season. And it's, it's thriving. The food system here is thriving and there's new farms all the time coming online and, you know, they're not having an impact on our farm and it's, it's pretty awesome. And I think there's a lot of towns across the U S that small farms are absolutely viable. Was that the case when you guys started farming in 2001? I think to a degree, but it's certainly blossomed since then. Um, and we've kind of, ridden that wave um and it is a great market but it's all it's all relative right so you know just because we can count on selling out every week doesn't mean we could double or triple or you know be a 20 acre farm and expect the same thing so it's it's a great market for the you know we we can produce quite a bit off our acre acre and a half but uh we're also pretty pretty keyed into we don't want to overproduce, you know, and we want to get paid for everything we grow. So uh, we've kind of dialed in over the years, uh, each crop and, uh, you know, we're, we're happy to unload a little bit for cheaper to restaurants at the end of the day, but mostly we, we count on selling what we produce. And, and I think that's just developed over, over the years has grown gradually over the years and maybe decreased over the years as other people come in and, you know, we have to compete with them, but it's, Marketing is definitely not, uh, it's one of the easier things going for us. But selling what we grow is, I don't know, I, I feel lucky that we are able to just focus on the production rather than hustling the produce. Yeah, I was surprised to hear when you talk about making a living on the farm that you guys are doing just the one farmer's market and, and a really small CSA. And it sounds like a fairly small amount of wholesale. I mean, that doesn't, it doesn't feel like as much marketing hustle as what I'm used to hearing about from farms. It's a good market. (laughs) The farm, I mean, the farmer's market is, is, it's astounding really. It's, it's a part of our culture here and it's really supportive of us. And we used to go to two markets. We actually started a midweek market when, when we first got going because, well, partially because we didn't have refrigeration. So we felt like we needed to have a, a midweek venue to get rid of crops. And that's also where we distributed our CSA. And then over the years, I don't know how many years in, but we realized that we were holding back produce from Saturday so we could sell it on Tuesday. And at the same time, we got a 
a cooler, uh, a trailer that we turned into a cooler and realized we could have the CSA pickup in our front yard. And it was kind of a no-brainer to, to drop a market. It really freed us up a lot to either work or find something else to do for those four hours each on Tuesday evening. And how big of a CSA do you have? I think it's 24 shares right now, 12 large and 12 small. And it's the farmer's market season. So I think it's 25 weeks this year, May through late October. So the way our CSA works is it's, um, they pick up on the farm here Thursday evenings. So we pull our trailer, our cooler into the front yard, park it, uh, put up a table with uh, a, a chalkboard that describes what's in the box and Kelly mentions a few things about what's happening on the farm now, maybe suggestions on what to do with what's in the box. There's a a cooler on the table that's an exchange box. So if people are tired of kale, they can switch it out for something else or it is a farmer's farmer's choice DSA. Yeah, we we build the boxes and basically that's the extent of our involvement with the CSA. You know, there's no weekly letter um we'll offer a farm tour or we offer for them to walk around the farm but it that rarely happens and even when we invite them on a tour we rarely see those people and it's it's a very i think it would surprise a lot of people that we put very little into the csa aside from growing the produce and for some people that might not feel right but it really works for us and it seems to work really well for our customers because our retention is close to 100%. And once in a while, it might dip down to 80% because four people left that year. But we don't really ever advertise. And we mo- we know most of the people that you know sign up for the CSA. I think it is something that we, in thinking about doing this podcast, we sort of thought, wow, what, what does our farm have? What Why? What, what do we have to say? And I think one thing that we really have to say is, is about self-awareness and I think our CSA is kind of a reflection of that in that we're not super social people and we're we're not you know we don't really have farm events and we don't want to do pizza night and we like it's just not who we are and initially I think we tried to be those people a little bit more when in our in our farming youth that we felt like in order to promote our farm or market it or get people to be loyal to it we needed to be something that we weren't particularly comfortable being. And over the years, I think, I think it's just really important to like be self-aware about who you are and let that be what your farm is. So our CSA on some level, you could look at it and say, well, where's the community or where's this? But we have people who are incredibly loyal to our CSA. And again, they come back year after year after year. And even when we do try to open it up, I think, those folks, a lot of them are families and they come and grab their box and they move on and they're hectic and busy and they don't, I mean, I feel love from them. Like, I don't, I don't feel like we're failing them in any way by doing it the way we're doing it. And I don't think they're disappointed in our approach. They just know that that's who we are and they're getting really awesome vegetables and we're getting a really awesome return back. And it's, it just works. And I think, I think often there's sort of an expectation that with CSAs or other farm things that you're supposed to do it a certain way or you're supposed to market yourself or sell sort of the product of farminess out there to the world. 
just doesn't fit with Russell and I. And I think, I think knowing who you are and, and following that and doing that is going to be sort of your more successful strategy over putting yourself in uncomfortable situations and doing events that you're not particularly happy with. And I love that idea of, you know, marketing your farminess. That's just like such a, I, that's just so on point with what we're all being asked to do. And it's, it is kind of crazy. Cause I think, kind of, I mean, I, one of the things I liked about farming is that I didn't have to deal with people. Right. I think farmers are often fairly reclusive people that you've got to, you know, in order to be a good farmer, you've got to be pretty comfortable working on your own and being out there. And then, and then there's the alternate side of that, the marketing side or the expectation that you're going to, you know, put on a show or, you know, put on an event or do something that, um, it doesn't necessarily fit your nature. And we've got ourselves in a couple of situations like that where it was just really uncomfortable for us to, you know, be having a farm dinner or whatever. It's just not where we want to spend our time and how we want to spend our energy and the relationships we want to have. And so we sort of learned early on that we needed to just follow our path and be who we are. And, you know, we would find, I mean, there may be people out in the world that would be extremely disappointed with our CSA, but those aren't our customers and we don't, you know, tell them it's going to be anything different than what it's going to be. Um, initially we get a new CSA member, you know, we tell them pretty clearly that they're probably not going to see us much and that, you know, they're just going to be a box and they need to like kind of be adults and managing the pickup and, uh, not having somebody pick up the wrong box or, you know, we're not monitoring that either. We're not checking them off or anything. So they, you know, they sort of self-select and, uh, I think that works pretty well. Do you feel like the small size of your CSA? is part of what drives its success in working with that model? I think it must be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I think if we were a hundred or two or 300 share CSA, it, we, we wouldn't be able to operate it the way we are. Yeah. I think that's, that's gotta be right. But again, following our sort of who we are, we wouldn't be happy with that. And, you know, maybe that's driven part of our, the smallness, right? Like it's, it's sort of a feedback loop. Jean Martin talks about, you know, an acre and a half and $150,000 coming off of that. And we, you know, we hear higher numbers from people like Connor Crickmore. Are you guys making those kinds of sales? How do your sales look relative to that on your acre and a half? I think it's reasonable to expect $100,000 off the acre and a half. Um, and I know that people are making more and, and, you know, more power to them if that's the direction they want to go. But I, I'm, I think in order to do that, you really have to start marketing more of the year and you have to do microgreens and you have to really focus on specialty crops that are really high value. And we do a bit of that, but we want the winners off. And uh, I we fiddled with microgreens a little bit and really didn't care for it. And we still grow corn and potatoes and winter squash that really don't yield much for the space. Actually, we grew dry beans and popcorn this year, which... Are incredibly low uh, dollar productive, but um, I, I don't know. We we want to be diverse, and you know we want to be financially viable, but we don't want that to be the only motivation for what we're doing. And yeah, I, I think we can say we're making a comfortable living. We're happy with it, and to me, that's more the point that we as farmers need to be concerned with: is what do we need and how how do we figure out how to get that? And right now it seems like there's 
And I appreciate that people are talking about the finances of farming. And I wish that was present more in my, you know, when I was doing the research and apprenticing and, you know, that was, it was all pretty hush hush. It seemed like at that point. Um, But I also think that there's, there can be an inclination now to have that be the main focus or only focus. And I think that's a bit dangerous because we're, we're not just doing this for the money. We're, you know, I don't know. It seems like most of us have a value system and we're trying to do good in the world. And there's not a dollar amount that goes with that. Right. I mean, once you get beyond the idea that the dollar amount that goes with that is the dollar amount that lets you farm again next year. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You need to. And maybe, maybe uh, come up with a retirement plan or, you know, some plan for the future. Because like I said, I didn't start farming until I was 35. Russell's a bit younger and, you know, 16 years in, we're looking at like some decrease at some point with that. So it's not, you know, it definitely goes beyond just farming next year. You have to um, make a plan for the future. And, you know, my child went to college and, you know, there's all these things that uh, come up beyond buying seeds and equipment. I think it's interesting that you guys have, have chosen to to not take that that idea of maximizing the income and, and doing some fun things like the dry beans and the popcorn. And one of the things I really enjoyed on my farm was having room to play with different things. Right. And that's part of why we took on the extra half acre is that we, you know, we, I mean, we are working towards making kind of as much money as we can, or, you know, like there is that piece, like we're not just all idealistic and fun, but we also craved trying some things, some other things and, you know, uh, just experimenting with all sorts of things. I guess seeds is one of them and popcorn is another and dry beans. And, you know, uh, it just gave us an opportunity to spread out a little bit and, and play. So you mentioned the seeds and we, and the dry beans, and I want to come back and talk about your seed production. Um, we've actually had some, some questions and some requests about that recently, but what else are you guys doing? Are you doing fruit and flowers and things like that as, as well as the vegetables and the seed crops? Not so much. Uh, we have blueberries, um, but when we started out, we did flowers. We both loved them, but they were one of the first crops that we winnowed out. And we used to call them, flowers were the crop that kicked our ass twice. So we would harvest them right before lunch with the crew and the crew would be sort of not uh, focusing super well and just sort of being ready for lunch. And so we'd have our ass kicked there and then they'd all sit in the cooler until we got finished prepping for the market and then we'd make bouquets. And so that would be the second ass kicking of the day with flowers. And, and off until midnight was kind of the issue is was something we could do in the dark. So. I don't know. I, I think we both were relieved when we gave that one up. And then you, you mentioned fruit. We started off growing strawberries, which that's another great crop. And I, I love them. They're easy to sell. Um, we have good, good climate for them. But it was just another crop that took crawling along on the ground, you know, slow picking. And I think we were both, that was an easy one to give up to. And I think at, at this point, I don't know, this was only a few years in, maybe three, four years in, I think we were both a bit apprehensive, like afraid of how the customer's response would be. And it felt great to just decide to quit and realize that we're, we get to decide and we don't have to please everyone. And there were a few people that were disgruntled and they got over it. So I don't, that, was, that was pretty empowering. But more to the point, um, 
basically we we grow diverse vegetables. There's a few we don't grow, melons. Um, we used to say okra, although we tried it this year for the last year. Um, <laughs> what else do we not grow? We, we we focus on salad greens and kale and head lettuce and uh, carrot, beet, chard, kale. Tomatoes. Yeah. Tomato and cherry tomato are big ones for us. Now, do you guys do a lot of production in high tunnels as well as outdoors? I'd say relative to our size, yes. So we at home here we have four. One of them's fairly small, and we we move it every year. So that one's, I think, twelve by forty-eight, and we'll move it each year. So that one can rotate. The rest are permanent. Um, and yeah, we we use them for season extension. We'll get a, a early season you know, greens crop out and then put a summer crop in there. We don't really overwinter much at all. Maybe a little bit for us to eat, but we're not, we're not really interested in marketing in the winter harvesting and we're not really set up for washing in the cold and, and really we want to be done. We want to, we want the two or three months fairly free. And then over at the, the least place, there's a couple of small houses there as well, which is, was part of the temptation to, start growing there was just to have more indoor space. Our season can be a bit, a bit, uh, short or marginal. Like springs can be harsh and, well, we just had our first real frost the other day and we can have them anywhere in early or even mid June. So yeah, the hoop house production really is a, a benefit for us. You said you've got some, some challenges with a, with a short season, but it's, it's a dry climate there in the Palouse, right? Summers are dry and, and often hot. Um, We're having our first rain today in 70 days. It's like something amazing falling from the sky. <laughs> the smoke is finally cleared. I was going to ask about that. Have you guys been challenged by the, the smoke that we've heard so much about from Oregon and Washington and Idaho and Montana? Absolutely. Yeah, it's been it's a little crazy. Actually, last weekend, the farmer's market decided to close at 11, um, which made a bunch of disgruntled farmers. And then they changed their mind and decided to stay open, which also made a bunch of disgruntled farmers. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's been really smoky. And, you know, like we don't own the smoke. Our friends, farmer friends in Missoula, into Oregon, up north and Sandpoint and out beyond are, are been really struggling with the smoke all summer. Um, you know, they rate it as some sort of like super unhealthy to go out in. And yet we're, we're farmers and we're out there and you can wear a mask, but it's barely. Yeah. Yeah. And how has that been working with your employees in those kinds of conditions? Well, I guess there's one day, was it just last week or the week before that we canceled a Wednesday? Um, Thursday, Friday, we pretty much feel like we have to work. Um, you know, we had masks for them. One guy wore one, the other didn't. They're tough yeah. and good and loyal and we're grateful and, you know. And we tried just to do the minimal amount that absolutely has to get done, like harvest basically, or for me, deal with watering or, um, yeah, and we can we can blow off some weeding or blow off some jobs that are less time sensitive. But yeah, they have a great attitude and we're fortunate and, you know, we give them the out if they we leave it up to them if they get to choose if they, if they want to work or not. But 
And how many employees do you guys have? We have one full-time employee, an amazing kid that started at 15. And he's now, this is his seventh year with us. And he's just happy to be our employee. And he's really skilled and knows our farm really well. And then we have a part-time employee that sort of rotates. We don't often, we're not often able to keep um, people year to year when you're only offering them 20 hours for six months. But um, the woman we have this year is talking about coming back next year. So, um, yeah, so one and a half. And I feel really lucky this year. Like this is probably the smoothest uh, crew we've had. Really productive, easy, easy to get along. You know, like communication's great, production's great, attitude's great. So that's, we're really feeling grateful for that. It's pretty incredible to me that you've kept that one employee for seven years. I mean, you hear about people doing that on in much larger operations, but you don't hear about that very often in, in what's essentially a very small. And seasonal, right. Yeah. Well, it's partially because he started when he was young. He was a kid and lived at home. Um, and he's just been able to uh, carry on with that. And, you know, we're trying to make the job better and better so that he can also take those three months off and come back to us. And, we're seeing, we're sort of navigating that. Um, it's this year, well, it took a year off the year before last. So this year is his first year back as sort of an adult, um, an independent adult. And we're working our way through how do we keep him and how do we, um, yeah, get him to come back every year. (laughs) With a small operation and not many employees. I mean, you guys are running a, a pretty lean farm. How do you make that work? Cause I still, I still get befuddled by that. We, this is, do we make it work? Like we absolutely do. We're successful. We have a viable farm. We're making a living, you know, all of this, but we also, you know, have come up against it. We, we work way too many hours as, as all farmers do. But I think the older you get, the less that's um, a reasonable thing. So that's sort of what we're coming up against now is we've run the farm, you know, we work, you know, 12, 16 hours a day. Um, and it, it, for many years, we just loved that. And that was just fine. We were totally content with that's what we're doing. Um, but, at, you know, I guess in particular, the older I get, the less that's satisfying. And so we're up against sort of trying to figure out how to, um, you know, give more work to the employees and shift what we grow that's a little bit less labor intensive. And we're not exactly sure what the solution is going to be to it. But uh, I guess the short answer is by working a lot. That's an issue we're dealing with, well, kind of perpetually, but we're coming up against, a, a, I feel like this is a really pivotal point in our sort of farm story. Because we used to be content working seven days a week, you know, six, seven months straight, long days. And I think partially we didn't know any better and partially we were kind of desperate and it just felt worth it. And now we're to a point where we're not desperate and we get to choose. We're able to pay more attention to the quality of life. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how we adapt um, in the future years. But Kelly proposed an idea to me earlier this summer, kind of in the middle of crisis and maybe crisis is too strong of a word, but she basically suggested that I ought to start thinking about maybe taking two days a week off which is kind of hard for me to get my head around because for me, that means 
Well, twenty four working. <laughs> well, there's that, but there's twenty four hours of work that won't get done by me. At least, you know, two twelve hour days plus Kelly's time. And so I, I think that's something we're kind of we're just brainstorming at this point and we'll make a farm plan for next year and hopefully make a plan that's more reasonable and um maybe we achieve that two days a week off maybe not but we're i think that's kind of the it takes me a while to get used to a new new idea so <laughs> i'm working on it and I, I feel lucky that we're able to, to we're in a position where we can choose to work less and now we just need to figure out how to do that and how to it, it's tricky because we don't neither one of us really want to give up any of the production. Um, but on the I, other hand, there's, there's young farmers, there's more and more young farmers coming to our market every year. And to me, if we can, like, why not give them some of that market share? And like, we love them. They're on our team and they're our, you know, they're our favorite people. And to, like, when we do think about giving up crops or giving up some pieces of things, we know that it's going to go to them and that that's awesome. Like, <laughs> that that feels beautiful, you know. <laughs> right. It, yeah, and we can go visit and uh, hang out and have something to say because we're not exhausted. And um, I, I'm looking forward to it. It's a it's an interesting interesting dilemma, but uh, yeah, I look forward to how the how the change unfolds. And. And you said this was just this was a conversation that cropped up out of a crisis. Do you guys working as a couple? And well, and you said out of a crisis that maybe wasn't quite a crisis. I feel like we need more terms for that, especially when it comes to farming, right? Like, you know, this this is gradation on a scale of one to ten in terms of crises. But yeah, do you guys have a structured way that you go about communicating between the two of you on the farm about you know those? larger priorities as well as the week to week and the day to day kinds of things? I think a couple of things come to mind. We have a, we have a couple of rules on the farm that we, when we started and one was no working with headlamps and one was no fighting. And like, if, if we're going to struggle over things, then we need to reassess whether we want to be doing this and living this life together or not. So we get along really well and we don't, there's not a, there's not a lot of conflict. We don't exactly have a structured way of figuring out Well, we sort of do, I guess. We definitely have crops. Like we, we say that, you know, certain crops wrestles the boss of and like I might and the crew might come in and work on them, but he's sort of the decider of um, how that crop gets grown, how it gets trellised, what, you know, how to, how to manage it. And then there's crops that I'm in charge of that I'm the boss of and Russell might come in and work on them or do something to them, but I decide. Um, so it's, there's really clear, um, crop divisions in a lot of ways. And then there's crops that we share. We also do a, you know, we do our farm walk once a week and, um, we figure out everything that needs to get done. And then mostly Russell, he's, He's the planner. You'll hear when we get to superpower, if we get there, uh, that he's he's an incredible planner. So I sort of leave it to him to figure out, prioritize, set up crew, what the crew's going to do, and what we're going to get done throughout the week. But I think we 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 agree on the priorities together, though, and that's maybe more to the point of how do we get along or how do we reduce conflict, and we need to be on the same page or be you know, we need to be going in the same direction. And 
you know, maybe we're not all the time, but I think it's pretty easy to be aware of that and, and figure out the solution or, you know, acknowledge that, okay, there's tension here. Why? And what can be done about it? And, you know, I work, I find working together super easy and I can't imagine. Yeah. Not really. You know, it's, we know each other well enough and, you know, each other's strengths and weaknesses and, you know, we're accepting and forgiving. And I think we complement each other really well. So that, that helps, you know, we have different strengths and, you know, but as far as structure, I don't know that. We've been winging it for 16 years. (laughs) And I'd say that I kind of like keeping the communication to a minimum. Like I don't like to over talk something. So, (laughs) you know, that works, you know, it's, I think you can spend a lot of time trying to figure something out with words and, um, which is where I think the crop divisions came from where, you know, we'd be talking about this or that, about trying to figure out, I'd have an idea and Russell would have an idea. And, you know, I absolutely trust Russell as a farmer. And I know that whether he follows my specific idea about how I think something should be done, I think it's pretty likely that he's going to come up with a successful crop. So I can just step back. It's almost a relief to step back and say, oh, he's got that. And I don't even have to think about it. It does not have to fill my mind. I've got all this other stuff that can fill my mind. And I trust him to just, you know, tell me when he needs help. And he'll he'll grow beautiful tomatoes, whether it's the varieties or the, you know, way to trellis or how to do it, what to put in the soil or any of it. Um, he'll, you know, he's a good farmer. <laughs> and I think there's another side to that in that if, if I am making the decisions on a specific thing and there's a failure, then I'm the one that owns it. And, you know, it's, it's easier than trying to compromise on everything and then trying to ease out what went wrong or, you know, how to compromise a solution. And yeah, I think, I think it, it really works for, for partners or whatever the relationship is for people to have their sphere of influence and for the opposite party to just trust that it's, They've got it. And if, and if they don't, then, you know, you figure it out and try next time. I think to trust their growth curve, because I know, you know, I've seen other farm relationships happen where, you know, two people come together to farm and one person will be in charge of a crop and there'll be a failure and the other person will sort of be mad and, and impatient with, I mean, trial and error is sort of in, intrinsic in farming and that, you know, in a relationship that isn't maybe as close as ours, it's easy to sort of blame and step back and feel like, well, that person isn't figuring that out. Where if they just let them have another year at that crop, it's probably likely that it would be improved. They'd 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 fix those problems themselves, but it causes conflict. So I think it's important to always step back and let that person grow at their rate of growth. And you know, maybe at some point you give up and say, I don't think I can partner with this farmer because they're not figuring it out. But I do think we learn every year, right? I mean, that's part of what we love about farming. Get better and better at it and, you know, learn and change. And Do you guys ever have situations with the crops where you're like, Russell or, or Kelly, you, you know, you've got to do, you know, you got to do better <laughs> at that? Or is, is there enough motivation from in, inside of you and enough knowledge and, and willingness to, to, to work out the problems that that's just not an issue? I think it comes up sometimes. So Russell... I do all the, all the like potted seeding um, and Russell's the direct seeder. So he's got, you know, three different seeding implements that he uses and he's 
always making adjustments and doing things. And I can go out there and see, you know, a shoddy planning of arugula or this or that. And I can, you know, yeah, I can, I can, I can be that way, but that's sort of not my better self. And I, again, I, I trust him to figure it out. I know that this isn't just like his final answer and he's not just happy with the outcome. So he's going to continue to work on it to the best of his ability. And, you know, I don't think there's a ton of that. Like, you know, I don't know. I, I think we're kind of our own harshest critics. So mm-hmm. when there's a when direct seeding failure, it's pretty obvious. And, you know, it hurts. You know, we take, uh, you know, it's, it's hard on the ego, I think, when, when, you, when you're not having yeah. good results. So If I'm making, if I'm go, planting flats of lettuce, um, in the summer and I'm not getting good germination, I'm definitely the one that's going to feel that the most and be the most frustrated and be working to figure it out. And I might turn to him for advice or, you know, perspective, but uh, yeah, I'm pretty motivated to get it fixed. And I think there is like, there's, there are circumstances where we'll put our heads together and say, what's going on here? Like, if it's not obvious, if it's not like, Oh, you're not running the feeder, right. Or you're not, you know, adjusting the feeder right if if it's a bigger issue than that then and we can't if it's not super obvious or there could be four answers to, to the one question we'll, we'll figure it out together we'll we'll brainstorm and we'll yeah we'll come up with we'll come up with ideas together on what to change or i don't know i think we've probably passed crops off to each other too or yeah there's crops that we've either one of us has quit and passed to the other <laughs> i really like that and really admire uh, I mean, everything you're talking about there with those real, what I think what you're talking about are really those human skills, that practice of, of being self-aware and being, yeah, I guess I'll just leave it there. That practice of just being self-aware. You mentioned that you do the, the weekly field walk. Uh, can you describe what that looks like on your farm? Oh, kind of stumbling around on Sunday morning with the clipboard, uh, basically just looking at everything, uh, writing down tasks that need done that week um and then later going in the house and organizing it into a schedule for the week and sometimes bigger projects like okay we need to start thinking about holland and compost or um it looks like there's going to be a little extra time this week maybe we should take on cleaning up that mess or you know stuff like that but yeah basically it's just wandering around on sunday morning and noticing what needs done and maybe maybe looking for problems that have been ignored because we're too busy with other stuff or kind of a time to step to step back and um, and observe rather than being a time to be pulling weeds or or actually doing the work having that yeah we're not working during that time and it doesn't it's you know it's maybe an hour tops or even a half hour tops where we just i mean and you know you can walk an acre and look at things pretty closely uh, in a relatively short period of time. And I really like doing it Sunday morning because I've kind of been ignoring everything Thursday, Friday, Saturday, because we're, you know, just focused on getting harvest out and marketing. We really don't do anything Saturday afternoon except maybe water. Um, so I like just kind of reintroducing myself to current situation and uh, figuring out, you know, what needs done first and, it helps me get my mind around uh, the coming week. And, and even if we're going to be productive on Sunday or not, I really like 
getting the rest of the week figured out, especially who's going to do what, you know, you know, what, how much work to save for later in the week and what, you know, what can be done Monday and Tuesday. And, and with the dry weather that you guys have there in Moscow, are, are you usually able to plan out the week pretty reliably because you're not having to worry about the weather forecast changing much on Thursday when you're sitting there planning things out on Sunday? Yeah, I think that's fair, except like April, May. April, May can be pretty wet and our soil can be pretty heavy. So, yeah, once it gets wet, that can be problematic as far as planting. Um, and we try not to be in the garden at all when it's very wet. We will harvest if we have to. But, um, yeah, once once June comes or even mid-May, yeah, we we can pretty much count on it being dry enough to do whatever we want. We use tarps a bit if we have to, if we know there's a big planting coming up and there's a rainstorm, we'll, we'll tarp it to keep it dry. But yeah, we, we can plan on not having rain. That's for sure. What are you guys doing for irrigation? Uh, we have a well that it's a little less than three ounce a minute. We pump into a cistern 24 hours a day and then we pump out of it during daylight hours. And it's basically all drip. We have, we have a few micro sprinkler setups that we can move around for either germinating small seeded crops, lettuce or carrots, um, or cooling crops. We'll grow head lettuce through the summer. So that, that can be a bit marginal here. So we shade cloth it and, you know, once it's maybe over 95, we'll, we'll run micro sprinklers for just a few minutes. Oh, several times in the hottest part of the day. So the majority, all of the farm and our house runs on this three gallon a minute well, but maybe six or seven years ago, we drilled another well, hoping for sort of more water. Obviously, it's pretty marginal and we got water, but it's really rusty and kind of skanky and we use it um, overhead to germinate cover crops. It's it's helped us in that we can sort of um, use it for certain things, but it'll it'll cover leaves with rust and it. It's pretty nasty, but we can germinate cover crops. Um, and, and we and don't even water them pretty thoroughly, which, you know, we used to be pretty skimpy on the irrigating buckwheat or Sudan, but now we can, we can give it quite a bit of water and they, they sure grow a lot better when they're <laughs> not, not uh, trying to live off of, you know, minimal water. I'm actually a little bit surprised here. You're talking about using crops like buckwheat and, and Sudan grass on as small of an acreage as you're on, because that becomes a real challenge to manage that when you're trying to maximize your productivity on that acre to find the time to get those cover crops in. Yeah. The time, the time's not so much an issue for us. We do have open beds, which I I think maybe would surprise a lot of people. Um, We do plant some of our beds two or three times. You know, we do, weekly plantings of salad mix and cilantro and arugula and dill and radish. And there's a lot of quick crops like that. We'll, that we'll plant every week. We, you know, transplant head lettuce every week. So anyway, those beds can turn over several times, but we'll also, I I would like, ideally I would like to cap that at two per season two you know, two plantings per year and then get a summer cover crop in and then get a winter cover crop in. Um, and that, that's one of the benefits of taking on this half acre this past year was it's allowed for a little bit more of that. And it partially it's just a release in the planning stages to allow for plenty of time for the crop to come out before the next one goes in or uh, a, 
you know, six or seven weeks for buckwheat. So we've also got a really minimal winter cover crop growing. You know, if we're coming out of crops in October, it's it's pretty cold by then and pretty wet. And so when we get winter cover crops in, but we also feel pretty committed to getting summer cover crops in as we can without crowding our, you know, production too much. But we also want to see, you know, we pull garlic out and put a cover crop in or we want to rest the ground and give it back something as well. So there are always summer cover crops. Even if it's just a bed, you know, there'll be a bed of something that comes out. So there's a few places out there that are, you know, a bed of, of buckwheat. It's not a whole plot, but it's, you know, throwing something in and letting it grow while we're not using that space. Yeah, and maybe we should mention this. This might uh, be a fine time to mention that. So we don't use a tractor. We have a BCS, A53 BCS, that we mostly use the Power Harrow. And we do till sometimes. And... Uh, the flail mowers or other main implement so we can and, and everything we grow are in beds so they're all on four foot centers you know approximately 30 inches wide um, and all of our beds are 50 feet long so it's easy to to cover crop one bed or two or three as they come out or an entire plot but um, I think yeah just to give people an idea of how we're set up it's pretty easy to you know cover crop the first three plantings of carrots as they come out and then the next three. And and how do you actually get the cover crop seeded? What's what's your process for that? Say once you've pulled out a crop of carrots, what comes next? Uh, carrots. So we'll take all the debris out. We'll throw that in the compost. And then if I was planting buckwheat, I would just walk along with the bucket and fling it out with my hand and then harrow it in and then water. Um, yeah, I don't have a, like a belly, uh, cedar. So we have used a cedar for facilia. We use cedar sometimes for certain cover crops. You know, it's one, one way or the other, depending on sort of the space we have and how we want it to grow. Yeah. And facilia, we just started growing it as a, uh, cover crop, like late, late summer, fall, uh, winter killed cover crop. And I love it, but it's, you know, it's a tiny seed. It's maybe carrot size. So it's it's really easy to overplant if you're just flinging it out. And I know people mix it with rice hulls or peat or something. And I tried that, but what I came to is just using the jang and you know planting it every four or six inches apart. And you need a decent. You can't do it through a bunch of straw, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in love with facilia as a as a winter cover crop that you want to winter kill. You know, it's hardy to maybe 20 degrees. So last fall, it grew until early, mid-December, I think, and then got snowed on and laid down and really protected the soil really nice. through a pretty harsh winter and then was easy to deal with in the spring. So I'm not, I have to admit, I'm not familiar with that cover crop. I did just Google it. It's got awfully pretty flowers on it. Purple, I would note. Um, yep. The, <laughs> so it's a... The bees love it. I keep wanting to go out there and film when it's when it's blooming. It's just, I mean, the buckwheat's the wet that way too, but maybe facilia even more so. It's lovely. What do you like about that crop? Well, it, it can tolerate the cold, so it you know it won't winter kill until twenty or even a little less. So, you know, it it can it can grow really well into into fall here, whereas buckwheat wouldn't or Sudan wouldn't. Um, 
And I like that it winter kills, you know, it's, it breaks down quick in the spring. And well, and I think partially like compared to a rye or a grain that has this like really tough stem, it's, it's pretty delicate and it breaks down pretty fast once it's down. So, mm-hmm. you know, leaves are easy to incorporate back in. And, you know, for all, we're just all trying to incorporate with our harrower or tarp and we're, we're up against, we mulch a lot. So there's, you know, we were pretty pushed to uh, get straw to break down as opposed to Cecilia that'll break down really fast and easy. That's not a legume, is it? Right. Yeah, I think the other the other option, if we want a legume uh, for an easy breakdown in the spring, would be peas. And we haven't done, we haven't experimented enough with that to to know what to, to count on. But I'm going to this this winter. Um, and then we grow like rye and hairy vetch, but really there's no point in doing that for us unless we're going to let it grow well into late May, or early June. Um, you know, I guess it can prevent some erosion if we're just sowing it and, and tilling it under when it's pretty little. But really, if if we want to get into the beds that early, we may as well grow facility, I think. Once you've gone in and seeded that then with the Jang, are you going over with any sort of a seed bed roller to really get good seed to soil contact or do you get enough out of the Jang to get a good germination? No, the, J- the Jang does it perfectly, you know, cause it rolls in the back and yeah, it's, it, it plants perfectly. I, I didn't get the Jang until last year, I think, and I'm loving it. Mm-hmm. Not, I'm not big into product placement, but that's a good seeder. Kelly actually mentioned that you have three seeders that you use on the farm. So you've got the Jang and what are the other two? I use the the six row seeder from Johnny's and I, I only use that for salad mix now. So it's just set up for salad mix. um, And I plant every other hopper in it. So I'll do uh, one run up and one back for six rows in the bed. And then the earthway, which really mostly what I use that for is marking rows for like planting head lettuce or garlic or something. But this spring we planted a dry beans with it and that worked great. Um, and in the beginning we used it for carrots and lettuce and, you know, it's pretty, it'll dump out a lot of seed really quick for you if that's what you're looking for. (laughs) (laughs) With that, we're going to stop here, get a quick word from a couple of sponsors and then we'll be right back with Russell Poe and Kelly Kingsland from Affinity Farm in Moscow, Idaho. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but it is truly a superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy, where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability that every farm needs. I've worked with BCS tractors for over 24 years, and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. And I'm not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheel tractor. And these really are small tractors with the kinds of features found on their four-wheel cousins and a wide array of equipment. Power harrows, rotary plows, flail mowers, snow throwers, sickle bar mowers, chippers, log splitters, and more. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. bcsamerica.com Perennial support for the podcast is also provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of living potting soils for organic growers since 1992. In addition to being excellent physical products that grow amazing transplants year after year, 
Vermont compost potting soils are an embodiment of the best of the art and the science of potting soils. Seriously, would you rather eat bread or drink beer rooted in a place and made with a deep tradition and respect? Or would you rather eat bread or drink beer that's the product of the most reductionist of modern science, which gave us sliced white bread and plastic bags and the most unpalatable of military industrial beer? And would you rather use potting soils based on reductionist science that require the daily infusion of liquid fertilizers? Or potting soils based on living compost and the best ingredients designed to bring the rich diversity of biology into your greenhouse planting trays and soil blocks? I know what I prefer, and that's why I would encourage you to take advantage of Vermont Compost Company's fall pre-buy program to help you get what your plants need at the best price with the best shipping options. Don't miss out. Vermont Compost's fall pre-buy program runs through December 21st. VermontCompost.com. All right, and we're back with Kelly Kingsland and Russell Poe from Affinity Farm in Moscow, Idaho. So we talked a little bit about cedars before the break. What are you guys doing for weed control on that scale of a farm? Weeding. (laughs) So I think uh, our main weed specific to our region and location, this piece of land, is bindweed or morning glory. And it's aggressive and perennial. And um, there's a joke, that, uh, a local joke, that there's one mother bindweed plant that lives about 18 feet down under the soil that torments all of our gardens and all of our farms. Um, but it doesn't respond to, there's no stale seed bedding um, with bindweed. And it really, it, you can hoe it, but it's just going to come back within, you know, a couple of days. Um, it's pretty aggressive and the best thing to do is to hand weed it. So yeah, we've spent a maybe sad amount of time and, you know, it would make a lot of farmers cringe how much time we've spent hand pulling, um, bindweed. It's generally, it's almost our only weed, although we're getting a little bit of chickweed lately. It's, it's been like our main problem. We don't really have annual, um, we've really had a, no weeds go to seed on the farm, um, but the, the bindweed bank is just, you know, bindweed seeds last 50 years in the soil and it's right. So we, we, we are weeding less and less though. And I think mm-hmm. that's because we've, we were really diligent for the first three, four or five years. And we will, you know, we'll spend quite a bit of time crawling along and, and weeding by hand and using the hand hoe. But we also have a wheel hoe that we do the paths with and we have long handled hose that we'll do a quick weeding with. And, I think why we're not seeing a bunch of the annual weeds is because we're we're killing them when they're young. Um, you know, we're bringing them in with with compost or they're blowing in. We have dandelions all over that, but you know, they're not they're never going to seed in the garden because we're we're weeding basically everything every three weeks or so, at least in the early part of the summer until the bindweed slows down. And I think early on we tried mulching heavily and that really doesn't work with bindweed. There are certain crops that we do mulch just because maybe not so much for weed suppression, but um, to, you know, protect the soil and help help the plants, reduce stress on the plants. Um, and then, you know, I'm a little bit sad to admit that we're turning to landscape fabric for, for some crops. And I think we always had a, a pretty bad attitude about using plastic, you know, in agriculture, but we're using quite a bit of it these days. Um, the hoop houses, the drip tape, the plastic bags for produce and now landscape fabric. And I think what kind of turned our heads towards that is we had a super bad thistle patch next to 
one of her greenhouses and it started moving into the greenhouse and started to get worse and worse. And, you know, even though we were diligently weeding it. So um, I guess for years we hand pulled it and then kind of gave up on that and started mowing it. And then it really spread. So we tried uh, growing winter squash there with landscape fabric and grew the best winter squash we've ever grown. And, you know, two years later, there's no thistle. So it kind of opened our eyes up to using it a, a bit more and in, in taking on this extra half acre this year, we knew we couldn't keep up with the weeds there because they're super, super bad. Uh, you know, worst bindweed, plenty of thistle, tons of annuals. So we, you know, decided we would use a lot of landscape fabric with single row crops. And, you know, it's, you know, I guess there's compromises everywhere, but we're we're pretty content with it, especially for the benefit. We like being able to reuse it. You know, it should last us for the rest of our lifetime farming anyway. So, you know, at least we're not throwing it out every year. And hopefully this piece of land that we've been leasing will be in better shape weed-wise in a couple of years that we could consider growing or somebody could consider growing crops there that you know, a salad mix or carrots or something that won't lend itself to the fabric. I think those are our main weed controls. We don't flame. Oh, we might smother with tarps. Um, I guess we've gotten into that, that the last couple of years, like using the tarp in the spring for a couple of weeks or, or, you know, killing off a, a planting of salad or arugula for, you know, three weeks or so and then planting it again. I still think that bindweed is sort of the major driver behind our management, and it doesn't really apply to anybody that doesn't have bindweed. Like our experience with bindweed is just, yeah. it is what it is, and it doesn't it doesn't translate. <laughs> or other perennial weeds, like, you know, thistle, at least we don't have that thistle. Mm-hmm. But it'd be similar management decisions, I think. And well, and I know from my own experience that, that a little bit of thistle can be a lot of trouble. Um, we don't really have the, you'll see bindweed here in the Midwest, but it never, it never really takes over the way that I've heard people talk about it out in the West. But yeah, the thistle can drive you crazy. In fact, I was just out at a friend's farm uh, last week and he was just, you know, drowning in the thistle in some places and and farming on ready ground uh, where the thistle hasn't been controlled. And it's just, uh, man, it's just, it's hard and it's heartbreaking because really once you've got the crop in, there's just not a lot you can do about it other than be pulling. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think this is what really opened our mind. Landscape fabric um, really, really suppressed the thistle in a really good way, and it, it definitely opened our mind to like maybe landscape fabric can be even therapeutic in some ways to growing crops. What kind of infrastructure do you guys have on the farm in terms of in terms of packing sheds? And you mentioned that you have a a trailer that's got a cooler on it. You guys have a walk-in cooler in addition to that. We don't. Yeah, it's just the just the trailer. So what is that uh, six by twelve trailer that we, you know, insulated and put a cool bot in? And yeah, we finally have a good pack shed. We built one last winter. It's it's been uh, it's been really fun to have a decent decent pack shed this year. It's maybe what twenty by thirty plus the little carport for the trailer. It's uh has a little loading dock on it. Has really nice windows that look out at the farm. Little sound system. <laughs> <laughs> we have a we have a we have a cellar in the that goes into the hillside, kind of between the pack shed and the house. That 
is the same level as the the floor. So the cellar is basically part of the pack shed. Um, lights. I don't know. It feels feels pretty. It's pretty, pretty efficient, deluxe. and I think efficiency is you know of course it's a it's a priority, but um, we had some infrastructure issues that were causing some pretty bad inefficiencies, and so now we can use wheels hmm. and. Uh, it's it's pretty great. You got concrete floors in there. It's not. It's a deck. It's like a uh, yeah, wood deck. It's off the ground, maybe one to three feet. A little bit of a slope. Okay. And yeah. With some with when you say like a deck, so it's got some space for the water to to flow down between the exactly. slats. Nice. Right. Nice. Really nice to stand on. We thought about doing concrete, but we just didn't want to stand on it and um i would even be open to the, uh, the concrete but in order to to get the right level to to match the cellar and to work with the, the trailer backing up and everything it just i don't know r- raising it up seemed a lot more reasonable than doing a slab at, at ground level and i'm happy with it i think yeah it's i'm totally happy with it and it's kind of a shame that we waited so long to make a nice one but you know, when we built the place, we started this farm on a bootstrap. And yeah, we we're super low budget. We we used recycled materials to build our first greenhouse, and you know, we we didn't have any extra money. We didn't have extra money for a long time. So now that we do, it's nice to you know put it into something that you know will last, and we can benefit from every day. And but yeah, that's the main infrastructure I can think of. Um, I guess there's a little barn that we use as a pack, as a like potting shed and, you know, store hay and tools. And uh, we mix all our potting soil. So we store compost in there. Like we get our compost this summer and then we'll, uh, you know, let it age in there in a bin over the winter and, and make sure there's some redworms in there to keep breaking it down. And then we'll sift it and, so I guess we spend a lot of time in there in the spring mixing soil and, you know, that's where we store implements and I guess the water system that there's a watershed that has that cistern in it. So there's an insulated building around it. And that's really convenient for us because it's, it's cold storage for crops that don't want to be in the refriger- in the, in the cooler. So we'll store tomatoes, eggplant, basil, um, yeah, cukes and zooks in there. And that, yeah, I think that's way better than the 38 or 40 degree cooler for all those crops. You guys are doing some seed production in addition to the vegetable crop production on your farm. We're just kind of dipping our toes into seed production. It's a, We're sort of exploring it as a possible uh, future semi-retirement farming. And also it's just fascinating and inspiring. and. Um, we started out growing a few crops for Snake River Seeds. It's a new co-op out of Boise. And then uh, we're trying a couple other crops this year. <laughs> uh, and yeah, it's fascinating and interesting. And I don't, I, it's, um, it's a whole other world. And it's fun to have a challenge and to have something new to learn. And, you know, even if we don't turn into, you know, switching the farm over into seed production only, it's still the process of learning is fun and you know, it's, it's, it's good to have a new challenge and you know, one, one of the crops that 
we're growing for Snake River Seed is um, Costata Romanesque uh, zucchini. So Kelly's hand pollinating those, and I don't know. It's a pretty intimate, intimate way of growing a, a zucchini seed. It's I don't know. We're still. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like a different kind of satisfying where you're growing a vegetable, and you know the person that's going to eat it, or your customers are going to eat it. That's like deeply satisfying and really nurtured us for a lot of years. Now when we're growing seeds, it's just amazing to think about where that seed's going to go. It's going to travel over time and space and grow in people's gardens and farms and feed people, you know, into the future. And that's, it's, it's just fun and interesting to think about and engage in. And where it's been, you know, where it came from and, you know, people doing this over the years and, you know, the, the seed continuing, the, you know, the plant continuing to evolve. And yeah, it's, we're, we're still, we're definitely in the honeymoon phase of that, that project. It's pretty inspiring. So what was it about seed production that hooked you, that got you into it and said, this is something that we're going to do on our farm? Well, I think it has some, some to do with looking at the future and what we're going to do. So we, I, I'm from further north in Idaho and my parents are aging and we talk about um, potentially moving there at some point and the markets just aren't there. Um, they're not what Moscow is. And we know that it would be, we're not sure we'd be satisfied farming in that way. And there'd be a lot more miles driven and it's just a different way of marketing. So seeds sort of offer an opportunity to, you know, farm in a remote area and then ship them to other places. And there's also potential for really great isolation distances in the, in those remote areas. So there's an opportunity there. Um, that is kind of mutually beneficial. And so that was some of the beginning of it. We also took a workshop from Casey O'Leary from Snake River Seed, and um, she got us kind of fired up about just how fascinating seeds are and how I think as farmers, you you know, we've bought seeds forever and we, we know good seeds from bad seeds and we know varieties that we like. And, you know, we, we even have like bought from wild garden and bought from adaptive and bought from uprising and like feel really committed to that. But we never really necessarily thought that we too could be seed growers. I think we always sort of equated it with having to start our own seed company. And it dawned on us that we, through Casey and her offer to say, well, why don't you guys just try one variety or why don't you just try this or that? And, you know, just grow this for us. And it just hit us that we could, we could sort of dabble in it and dedicate a bed or two or three or, you know, part of the farm to seeds. And that, um, you know, it's just a different enterprise than, and starting your own seed company that just seemed really overwhelming and sort of out of our reach. Had you guys been doing seed production for yourselves? Had you been saving seeds for your own farm? We, we saved tomato. Yeah, we saved, we saved tomato seeds and sort of some of the easier low hanging fruit um, we've saved over the years, um, but not a, not a ton. And not a whole lot of attention paid to isolation or you know, purity. A, yeah, reasonable quantity for you know maintaining the genetic strength and. I think something that's really cool and fascinating about seeds is that purity issue and that just that while you're growing vegetables, you can you can kind of bend the rules or kind of make a compromise, and if the zucchini gets a little too big, you can either toss it aside and throw it in the field, or you can take it and maybe somebody wants to stuff it and make a you know. With seeds, there's no 
bending of the rules. There's no, you know, if something's compromised, then that seed is not um, going to go, it's not going to be sold, and it's not going to go out. It's not a lot of margin of error. It's either good or it's not. And I think I really like putting myself up against that sort of black and white. Tell me about the, the workflow that goes into producing your zucchini seed. So, okay, so when we first, uh, Casey first suggested we grow some seed for her, we tried five different summer squash seeds sort of next to each other, but we were going to hand pollinate them. And it was a big mess. There was, um, you know, they vine around and it, we got some seed out of it and that was fine. But it, this year we narrowed it down to just the costata. And so, you know, we transplant them out and grow them like normal zucchinis. And then at the point they start flowering, we are taping flowers and um, hand pollinating and marking, and then they just grow and mature and turn into whales, is what I call them. And they're beautiful. And it's just really fun to see plants go through their whole cycle all the way through food and into something else. Um, so, you know, a lot of it's the same as growing a vegetable, and then there's pieces of it that are really different. And right now, those guys, we've harvested them. It's, you know, fall's coming, we've had our frost, and they're um, in the pack shed curing and maturing and they'll eventually be broken open with a hammer and we'll extract the seeds. And then I guess the other seed crops we're doing right now are five varieties of tomatoes, four for Snake River and one for Fedco and then a lettuce variety. And that, that lettuce is new for us this year. So that's, that's interesting. Um, it's a variety, it's a crisp head. So they're, they're a bit reluctant to, to end up their seed stock, you know, like they're, they're real tight and some of them can break through that, that center and some can't. And, you know, a lot of them send, send little, well, whatever they're called, seed, seed heads around the side and we're getting some seed off it. We'll, we'll kind of know here in the end how, how much it's all worth, but it's one of our favorite lettuce varieties. And it's, you know, because we're excited about that, Casey at Snake River is like, sure, yeah, try it. it. You know, it does all the heat. Let's let's see let's see you produce it. And um, so we're excited for that one. And you know, we haven't tried any biennials yet, or you know, we're still pretty keeping it pretty simple. But I I could imagine switching over at some point to just seed production, and I think it'd be fun to have a different pace of the season. And right now, we're really locked into this you know, CSA every Thursday, marketed every Saturday, you know, 26 weeks in a row. And there's certain things that happen on Monday, certain things that happen Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Uh, and it's all fairly predictable and regimented. And with seeds, I imagine there's a bit more flex and sure there's going to be critical moments that we really need to be on the ball, but, you know, maybe we could take three days off and hang out in the mountains or, you know, maybe, Maybe we don't have to stand her out the market for the alarm doesn't go off at four. (laughs) (laughs) There's that, right? All right. (laughs) So we'll we'll see. It's hard to know. Hard to know the future, but we're, we're excited to try something new. Well, I really like, I think it's important to find those things that, especially after 15 years on the farm that engage you again and make it interesting and keep it fun and exciting. Yeah. Are you guys responsible for cleaning the seed? How much of that do you have to do? Or is it really just kind of doing a, a raw harvest and shipping that off? 
No, we're cleaning. And we can, uh, we can go down. Well, last year we delivered our seeds to Snake River Seed, partially just for a visit, but, um, you know, the tomatoes will be ready. They'll, they'll, they'll be in good shape. The lettuce, um, Casey has this fancy screen that has like uh, rectangular slots in it. That's really good for cleaning lettuce seeds. So we can, we can use hers, her screen for our final, final cleaning. We're cleaning like the squash seed will be clean. They're the, um, they're sitting in the, the, the squash are sitting in the pack shed right now. They've been harvested for, I don't know, three weeks or so, but it's, it's about time to bust them open and start cleaning them. One of the things they made me want to talk to you when, when I saw your uh, recommendation come across to have you guys on the show, uh, was the comment that the person made about how you guys have so openly shared your knowledge with the newer growers in the region. I think that's been a really conscious decision. Um, I think that there's like a, a, a why in the road that you can go. If you're an established farmer in a community and there's new young farmers coming in, I think that, you know, you can go one direction and feel really infringed upon and maybe bitter. And I think a lot of young farmers sort of experience that from old farmers. And we have a young farmer here, Keegan from Victory Farm, who she really inspires us a lot. And her words about that was, that's not a pretty look. And it really struck me that that's not who I wanted to be. Like, even if those young farmers take some of our market share, their their mission is our mission. Like, they're on, we're on the same team, you know? And I think that I just want to be, I want to be that person that's welcoming and just, I guess it's intentional on that level that we just always want to be open and share and not feel, I think there's like that, that tightness of hand that you can have in the world where the tighter you grip things, the harder it is to hold on to them. And I think that you, yeah, these kids that are coming up. They're amazing. You know, <laughs> they're just like beautiful, amazing, inspiring farmers. They teach us things all the time. I mean, Keegan, again, not to quote Keegan, she, she really sort of changed our perspective at one point where she said that she sees a lot of farmers sort of being victims to their farms and that she reminds us that like we're, we're basically privileged to be farmers in this world, but we're privileged in a way that like farming is a choice and that we could do all sorts of other things to make living and we're doing it because it makes us happy and because it inspires us. And there's no point in like feeling resistant to these young people that are coming, coming along. So yeah, we've always um, tried to just reach out and welcome and share and encourage and, and we get a lot back for it. Yeah. I think everyone benefits and, and the more, the more open we can be, the more open other people are willing to be. And that's, it just, that's a you community know, we wanted to we create. We all benefit, and and maybe for people that are that hesitate with that, you know, I I feel like if we can't hold our own against the up and coming farmers, something's wrong. Like we've had a head start, and you know, we've had a long time to, you know, build our reputation, and, and you know, we have the regular customers, and we can't blame our failings on you know, the, the youngsters. So that, that's not a, that's not really a legitimate argument, I don't think. And, and in addition to that, I think that farmers, I mean, in the end, farmers 
tend to be our favorite people, you know, right. like we're, we're not we're somewhat socially awkward or whatever, but when we're around farmers, we can talk all day long about farming. And for a lot of years, there were some farmers locally, but not a ton. And in the last maybe 10 years, there's been sort of the uprising of farmers in our area. And I mean, you can see it as competition. You can also see it as like, finally, we have a farm community. Yeah, it's a gift. It's awesome, (laughs) you know, but I think it it may have, it it may have informed our desire to like have a community. So I used to sort of walk around moping about like, where's my farm community? We'd go to farmer gatherings, other places and see, you know, groups of people that farm next to each other. And it would just make me sad that we didn't have people to talk farming with, or we didn't have other farmers to help out or like in a hoop house or do different things. And it just suddenly that's happened over the last few years. And it's, we're so glad to that end. Also, we, we have started this, the farmer to farmer um, exchange that um, sort of came out of the Oregon one. We've been to the Oregon one that's been referred to on the show a few different times. And it just, also always reminded me of how much I crave that and connection. So where we our geographic areas, we're in Idaho, but Idaho is kind of skinny and long right there. So there's other farmers, there's sort of farmers north of us, but there's not in our state, there's not farmers around us really. We're just on Highway 95 and that goes north south and that's sort of it. And then there's Washington to the west and Montana to the east um, over a big mountain range. We're not there's no organization that really connected all of us um, that, you know, there's Washington Tilt and there's the Montana Growers Union and there's not a lot in Idaho except for down in Southern Idaho. So Ellen from Kalani Farm and I have having gone to the farmer farmer in Oregon just decided to start our own. So we ended up just sort of cold calling farmers all over in the area. And uh, this will be our seventh year, I believe. Um, it's pretty cool that we're starting all to know each other and the relationships that have come you know, I'll hear a farmer talking about getting a hold of so-and-so over in Montana to ask him a question about this or that. And it's just really heartwarming to have a connection with all of us, sort of a list of, you know, we're all farming in the same bioregion, but we didn't have a, a means of being connected. Um, so once a year for two and a half days, we get together and talk farming with all these folks from our same, you know, shoveling hope snow from hoop houses and dealing with frost in June and uh, no rain for 70 days. And like, we're, we're pretty specific and we've got a lot to talk about with each other. So pretty well established. And I feel like whether I organized it or whether, you know, it feels like it's got a life of its own now and that it will continue out beyond our efforts. Um, and that feels super good. When you guys have those meetings, is it, are the conversations structured? Is it, you know, we're going to do a, a workshop about this or we're going to all sit around and talk about you know, cedars or we're all going to sit around and talk about the lack of rain or is it, is it more just sitting around talking as a group and, and really just being in community? Yeah, we really modeled it off to the farmer to farmer exchange in Oregon. And so the attendees set the topics, they say, they, they, you know, say what they want to talk about. And then we all vote to sort of prioritize those things. So we do, we sit in circles, you know, with, with a topic in mind, if it's cedars or, you know, hoop houses or whatever it is. Um, we dedicate a couple hours to sitting in a group and talking about that topic. And, you know, a lot of conversations go on outside of these sessions. There's maybe five over the course of a couple of days. And then there's a lot of free time to talk about other things as well. We do slideshows of each other's farms because we never get to see them. Cause we're always working. And, uh, yeah, 
with that, I think it's time for us to turn to our lightning round. We're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor, and then we'll be right back. This lightning round is brought to you by you, the listeners of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And the nice thing about that is that I don't need to go on and on about it because the fact that you're here probably means that you already think that the Farmer to Farmer podcast is kind of cool. If you value the show, please consider heading over to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate to have a look at our options for directly supporting the show. Your direct support helps make this show available to a wide community of farmers, farm workers, and farmers-to-be across the country and the globe. I would especially encourage you to check out the option to support the Farmer to Farmer podcast through Patreon, which provides a way to make a monthly contribution to the show. $5 a month comes out to just over a buck a show and makes a big difference in keeping the tractor running over here. That's farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. And thank you. So what's your favorite tool on the farm? Okay, it's a difficult question because I have many, but I will, for the sake of the lightning round, pick one um, and say the flail mower. I really like mowing through cover crop or, uh, you know, broccoli that's all infested with aphids and cleaning it up quick. And I didn't have one until a few years back. So, yeah, I'm really, I'm usually pretty happy when I'm running the flail mower. And if I'm not happy, I'm going to be happy when I'm done running it because it's going to look a lot better wherever I was. <laughs> I mow all the lawn with a flail mower. It's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, that's my choice. And how about you, Kelly? Jeez, that's a really hard one for me. So I grew up on a, in a machine shop and tools are, you know, I love tools. And I think I have an expectation that you, you kind of better love all of your tools. And if you don't, you probably ought to get rid of it and replace it with something else. I'd say, Kelly, you know, they're, they're not like kids, right? I mean, you, you can pick a favorite one and the rest of them aren't going to care. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, I don't know. Maybe the wheel hoe. We have a Valley Oak wheel hoe with a metal wheel and it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. Also cleaning stuff up and just, you know, it's pretty fast and easy to run and but I don't know that that's the tool that I thought I was going to choose when we started getting ready for this podcast. I'm looking <laughs> at Russell to remind me. Yeah, he's saying self-awareness. And I have said that the whole time that I think that's probably the best tool that you have is self-awareness and just sticking with what makes you feel comfortable and what you like to do rather than putting yourself in miserable situations. And maybe that is it. How about self-awareness? All right. <laughs> And Kelly, what did you do before you were a farmer? So many things. Like I said, I didn't farm until I was 35. So prior, directly prior to that, I was the deli manager at the local food co-op. And I came to Moscow to go to school. I was studying social work. And prior to that, I was a wilderness survival guide. Um, yeah, I did massage therapy. And I worked in my family's machine shop rebuilding cylinder heads. Um, so <laughs> many things. <laughs> How about you, Russell? What were you doing before you were a farmer? Not much for work. Um, a lot of odd jobs and seasonal work. Um, environmental activism. Yeah, that's pretty much what brought me to the area was, uh, environmental activism. And it's actually probably what brought me to farming because I, you know, was getting burnout on being an activist and being broke and living out of my truck and my best idea was, well, maybe, maybe farming is a respectable way to, to make a living in this world. And yeah, I've been pretty happy with it. And Russell, what's your favorite crop to grow? I'm going to say head lettuce, just picking one of many. Um, 
And I think the reason behind that is because one, Kelly loves it. She, you know, feeds it in trays. She insists on being the one that transplants it. And then from then on, it's kind of my crop. So I water it. I deal with the shade or no shade, uh, misting or not. Um, and then I harvest. And I don't know. I kind of like the the tag team on that. And then I also really like our head lettuce customers. You know, it's not just the foodies. It's it's all kinds of people, normal, you know, working class, old people. Um, you know, it's affordable. It's good food. I love eating it. You know, we eat a lot of head lettuce. We hardly ever eat our salad mix, even though it's gorgeous. Um, it changes throughout the year. Like I like that uh, we can grow many different varieties and we grow, you know, varieties in the spring that don't do well in the summer heat and then we switch. And then this time of year, we're growing different, different heads. But, um, so I, I think I like that variety. And I love the pictures of the head lettuce on your farm, the, the blocks of color, um, you know, and it's really oh, clear great. that you guys have thought about, you know, how much of each of these things you're going to be able to sell and, and kind of plant it accordingly. Kelly, what's your favorite crop to grow? Yeah, and I just feel like I'm really stickled, but I think I'll say cherry tomatoes. Um, so Ruffa grows the slicing tomatoes and heirlooms, and I grow cherry tomatoes, and uh, it's really fun to mix them up. And Well, not even mix them. I grow them in rows. They're already mixed. So as we harvest, their their mixes are made as we harvest, and that's really fun. And just how we trellis them and all of it, I just sort of love that that cycle. So Kelly, you already told us what Russell's farming superpower is, but would you like to say a little bit more about that here? Well, I think uh, he's definitely, he's incredibly good at making a plan and sticking to it. And we were just talking this morning about this sort of speculating about what this conversation might be and sort of agreeing that sometimes your superpower is also your Achilles heel, but he's really, really good at, at you know, making a plan in the winter. And, you know, figuring out when crops are going to go in and when they're going to go out and when you can flip a bed and following that and sticking to it. And it's kind of incredible. And I've always been aware that, you know, my farming, my farm without Russell would not look as tight or as, you know, be quite so dialed in as the farm with Russell. So I think his superpower is that. I mean, on the other side, the flip side of that is that he's pretty driven to stick with that schedule and at his own expense and mine. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's kind of rough, but he's definitely good at it. And the farm's definitely benefited from it. And Russell, how about Kelly's farming superpower? Yeah, it's a tricky question for me. Um, I'm kind of a literal person. So uh, I, I guess how, how I think of it is one of the, one of Kelly's strengths that we all really benefit from is her, her efforts to feed us well. And so part part of the benefit of working here is Kelly makes lunch every day that crews here, which is five days a week now. And it's always really good. Um, it's always, you know, centered around whatever's in season and we, we eat really well. But then on top of that, she's also really focused on preserving food for winter. So, you know, it's, kind of above and beyond what what really the farm needs but it's a it adds to a a quality of life that we really count on to to eat well and to eat well all year and to eat seasonally and eat our own food and 
Yeah, I think it's one of those decisions that we've made over the years to really value and, you know, make time for. And it might mean that she's, you know, not in the field for a couple half days a week because she's canning or, you know, drying, drying cherry tomatoes or, or whatever. But um, we really benefit from it. And I don't know if that qualifies as a superpower or not, but it's a, it's a pretty great um, complement to, to what we have going on here. And finally, Russell, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Oh, maybe to relax. Uh, you know, I think I used to stress out a little bit too much. And um, maybe that's just, you know, my personality that I'll be, that's something I'll need to be aware of forever. But, um, you know, that said, I'm really, I'm really not into having regrets or to looking back and saying, oh, I wish I'd done this or that, or if, if I'd done this, you know, things would have turned out differently. And I'm really happy with where I am and where we are and what the farm looks like and um, whatever, you know, we, we got here through the path we took. So in order to look back and change something, I don't know that I would. Um, but yeah, I think reducing stress is kind of a, it, it would be nice if I had paid attention to that a little little earlier on. And Kelly, how about you? If you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? I think it would revolve around sort of trusting. And again, of course, we sort of anticipated these questions. And I think it, it comes down to a phrase that we really love around here, which is called giving good weight. And I think that like we didn't know when we started this farm that 16 years later, we would still be feeding these same customers. And there's like, kids that have grown up on our food and gone off to college. And, you know, I think that that relationship in the beginning, we were broke as hell and just, you know, bootstrapping our way through the first couple of years. And I think it's really important to like be generous and trust that things will work out. Again, it's that like tight hand or open hand concept. Um, so I think I would just encourage myself to, continue to give good weight and trust that things are going to work out. Kelly and Russell, thank you so much for being on the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Thanks a lot, Chris. It was really fun. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. And thanks for all these podcasts. You're really helping a lot of people out out there. So mm-hmm. hope you keep it up. So it's an honor to be able to do it. Thank you. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 138 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Affinity. That's A-F-F-I-N-I-T-Y. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Rock Dust Local, the first company in North America specializing in local sourcing and delivery of the best rock dust and biochar for organic farming. And by Local Food Marketplace, providing an integrated, scalable solution for farms and food hubs to process customer orders, including online ordering, harvesting, packing, delivery, invoicing, and payment processing. Additional funding for transcripts provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovation in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review or talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. 
You can support the show by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. We already talked about that in the lightning round. I'm working to make the best podcast in the world and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com and I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there. Keep the tractor running. <laughs>